0: This is hell. This week, it's villains, waste, and contagion. Because this is not the media. This is hell. And today, we begin with the villains. And what better way to describe people and entities that profit from things like police violence? Yes, here in the United States, we even allow police violence violence profiteers. I mean, what could possibly go wrong other than incentivizing more police violence rather than deterring abuse by law enforcement? It's all part of the weird and wacky way in which cities are funded. Weird and wacky because it seems to be intentionally confusing, mired in obfuscation, as if it's not meant to be understood. And the identity of those benefiting from it is often left unknown. When our city's budgets fall short, as they always do, and the state isn't willing to step in to fill those gaps, municipalities sell bonds, which are essentially loans to the private sector, who can then help cover the bills for the city while making a tidy profit, even when those budget shortcomings are due to civil lawsuits brought against the police. In this way, bondholders profit from police abuse. In a few minutes, we'll speak with award-winning independent journalist Clark Randall, who posted the Boston Review article Bond Villains, how a little-understood feature of urban finance, municipal bonds, fuels racial inequality. Clark studies systems and histories of race, housing, and municipal finance. His work is concerned specifically with the consolidation of the urban planner profession and the creation of budgetary norms at the local level, as well as low-income housing policy and the historical processes of segregation and suburbanization. Recently, Clark uh, has written extensively on large landowners in the Midwest and the politics and funding mechanisms of the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program. Clark is the Lynn Cooper Harvey Fellow in American Culture Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also a member of the 2022 cohort of scholars for the Divided Cities Initiative, which focuses on how segregation in this broad sense has and often continues to play out as a set of spatial practices in cities, neighborhoods and public spaces, including schools, health facilities and entertainment venues. He has worked as a research assistant in Princeton University, collecting pension data for Illinois municipalities, analyzing the racial and class politics of pension funding. Clark also assisted in the editing of The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI Aided and Abetted the Rise of White Christian Nationalism, by Larone A. Martin. Originally from St. Louis, Clark is currently based in Berlin. Find out more about Clark at ClarkRandall44.com and on Twitter.com at Clark T. Randall. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, welcome to Mondays. How was your weekend?
1: Hey, I had a fantastic dream Saturday night. Oh, really? Yeah, the world was ending. And, and, uh, you know, everyone took it really well. They were like, it's getting really hot. And then we determined that it's so hot that it'll be like unlivable in a week. and everyone handled it well like called up their friends told them how, well, how the, much they appreciated them and stuff and then uh, inexplicably went to the mountains to you know to meet the apocalypse right well the, like you do uh, <laughs>
0: exactly you do that in movies and see then that.
1: i was in the car going to you know leaving for the mountains and i i thought oh man Well maybe we're still doing This is hell on Monday (laughs) And I emailed you And you were like Yeah of course this is hell (laughs) And I I was like Makes sense and I explained it to my wife It's like It's always this is hell So (laughs) what's changed
0: Wow, that's a very prophetic dream. Let's hope it does not come true. We'll see. Uh, also joining you today is Nick Mann. Nick is sitting in for the second time uh, watching to see how the show goes. How was your weekend, Nick?
2: Um, my girlfriend
1: broke up with me.
0: That's not good news. This is hell. Wow. So this is hell. That keeps being proven over and over again. I'm sorry that the show has cursed you in this way, Nick.
2: We're all good. We hung out for two days in a row right after that, so...
0: (laughs) There you go. It can't all be bad. (laughs) My weekend uh, started off great. I got an email from a listener, Alex, who writes, Hey Chuck, I'm in Chicago until Monday around 8 p.m. when I head back to San Antonio. Been a fan for about six years and would love to stop by and say hello if this kind of thing is something people do. Let me know if this is possible. I'm a Texas-based organizer and love your stuff. Just want to show my appreciation and make a friend. Best Alex. So Alex included a link to a recent article he had posted at Jacobin titled Texas's Death Star Bill is an attack on workers and democracy. The newly passed HB 2127 is yet another attempt by the GOP controlled state legislature to impose minority rule over the state of Texas. It's the working class that will pay the price and the working class that must organize to fight back. The authors of the article are Alex Brenell. The Alex who contacted us, and David Griscom. Uh, Jacobin's bio for Alex says he is an advocacy director at Move Texas, the Move Texas website. Movetexas.org states it is a grassroots, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization building power in underrepresented youth communities through civic education, leadership de- development, and issue advocacy. We believe that together we are transforming democracy in Texas and beyond and some of you may recognize the name David Griscom as uh, he was part of the Michael Brooks show and is now the co-host of the podcast Left Reckoning Alex explained he was here in Chicago because he was on a panel at the this past weekend Sentencing Project Conference on Civic Power Alex was here to talk about jail-based voting in Texas after some recent victories so we love meeting listeners and when they're from out of town I get to learn about where they're from like Daniel, who told us all about where he lives, Jackson, Mississippi, and the racial and political turmoil taking place there. Coincidentally, we also got an email this weekend from Francesco, which I'll be sharing a little bit later, who years ago dropped by during our weekly meet and greet, this is how office hours, in the middle of his cross-country road trip from Portland, Oregon, as he was moving back to Italy. So I'm looking forward to meeting listener Alex, but instead somehow, or I was looking forward to meeting him, uh, somehow I, I aggravated the stomach muscles that are still recovering from my late June hernia surgery, which both my surgeon and doctor said would heal in four to six weeks, and that was nine weeks ago. However, Sean, who has joined us for office hours in the past, recently went through the same operation in recovery, He said the pain lingers not for four weeks, not for six, not for nine, but more like five months. And Sean is proving correct as I was unable to meet up with listener Alex because I spent the majority of my weekend with an ice pack on my stomach, which really sucks. All that said, if you ever do have plans to be in Chicago, give me a couple weeks heads up and we'll hang, whether it's during our weekly Wednesday office hours or whenever it works out for you. This is how the only radio show podcaster live stream where the bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host—that's me, Chuck Mertz—actually wants to hang out with you, Dan. What is this week's question from Hal for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from hell is, what makes you so special anyway? What makes
0: you so special anyway? We will share uh, your question from hell answers as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with Clark on the creepy and mysterious world of municipal bonds and what that means for all of us, no matter where we live. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Dan has this week's Hangover Cure.
1: This was a new one to me. Uh, Scouse! We apologize for the source of this week's Hangover Cure, a website called Health Means Wealth, which nobody ever should visit. The site ran an article with the headline, Hangover Relief, 12 Cures for a Refreshing Restart. They report Scouse is slow-cooked meat, beef or lamb, with root vegetables, onions, and flavorful seasonings. It's a hearty meal that works wonders in curing a hangover. A user wrote, I was working in a bar and went out with colleagues after the Saturday shift, got extremely drunk, and conveniently forgot my shift at 2 p.m. the next day. I spent the morning feeling miserable. My mother-in-law had made scouse and I had two massive bowls and was cured. Scouse or scouser is also a term used for people from Liverpool. The reason is scouse, a dish imported from Scandinavia, is very popular in Liverpool. The website doesn't explain why. That makes this week's hangover cure scouse or chunks of beef or lamb cooked with root vegetables like potatoes, carrots, and onions.
0: So coming up, the way cities are funded and lenders profit from that funding. Uh, not only emboldens police violence But undermines democracy Dan shares some of your answers To our most recent question from hell We will tell you what happened During our most recent bonus Patreon podcast Which is available at patreon.com Slash hell. We'll tell you what's happening On the show later this week, we'll share an email that we got from listener Francesco, uh, who years ago, I think it was back in 2017, interrupted his road trip across the United States to return to Italy by dropping by here during our This Is Hell office hours, and it was great meeting him. And so we're going to read an email from a listener who dropped by during office hours who's from out of town, just like Alex B. was this weekend, who I was supposed to meet up with, but unfortunately... My hernia surgery may be failing. And as it's Monday, historian Dr. Seb Vupper has a new Past Inside the Present. Dan, what is Seb talking about this week? Do you have a Past Inside the Present over there? Your mic's not on.
1: Monday. Uh, yes, this it is, is Monday. why I don't usually do, do Mondays. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Sebastian looks at how the United States ended up with a drinking age most other un- countries laugh at.
0: Live in the United States, where capitalism is the virus. This is hell, and the virus of capitalism, of profit-seeking at all costs to society. Of the only solutions considered being market-based, perpetuates much of the structural inequalities we all suffer from every day. Here to help us have a better understanding of how our cities are funded and why award-winning independent journalist Clark Randall posted the Boston Review article, Bond Villains, How a Little Understood Feature of Urban Finance, Municipal Bonds, Fuels Racial Inequality. Welcome to This is Hal Clark great
2: to be here. Um, I really respect what you guys got going on. I appreciate the uh, chance to talk.
0: Uh, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate the work that you're doing, which is absolutely fantastic. And I'm probably going to annoy you in the future to get contact information for Lerone Martin, because I would love to have him on the show. Oh, uh, he's
2: uh, one of my good friends. We should definitely do that.
0: Yeah, he's very, he's, that writing is really amazing. And it's something that we Uh, Didn't cover when the book came out back in February because of a number of issues of me at the time. But again, the name of the book is The Gospel of J. Edgar Hoover, How the FBI aided and abetted the rise of white Christian nationalism. You can find out more about Clark at ClarkRandall44.com and on Twitter at ClarkTRandall. So you start by writing that municipal governments today hold around $4 trillion in outstanding debt. For many cities, the growing costs of simply servicing their debt is cannibalizing their annual budgets. When municipalities get in trouble, it's not uncommon for around a fifth of a big city budget to go to debt service alone. This is a... uh, far from a new development since the birth of the modern city in the 19th century, cities have turned to the private sector to fulfill their immediate cash needs by issuing what are known as municipal bonds. So why must cities rely on the private sector for funding? Could we fund cities in some other way where somebody doesn't profit from it, or do we choose to fund cities with bonds?
2: That's a great place to start. Um... We absolutely choose to fund cities with bonds. Um, That history is, goes back more than a century and a half. Um, However, no, it wouldn't have to be this way. Um, And I think the the idea here is at what level do we fund cities with uh, private market bonds? If cities had a, you know, regulated and maintained, and it is regulated amount of debt and private markets that might not constitute that much of a crisis especially depending on the interest rate. The idea though, or the issue at hand would be that how reliant are cities on private finance and, and what we've seen in the last few decades and as Dustin Jenkins writes, and really since the uh, mid 20th century is that they've become more and more reliant on that as uh, the federal government has really withdrawn from urban funding um, in a post civil rights uh Landscape.
0: So you point out that this kind of these uh, municipal bonds are in the whole process is very much invisible. Why is this process invisible? And is that intentional, like those who are behind uh, private equity doing everything they can to stay anonymous? Is this like other aspects of financialization that are invisible, where those who benefit do everything they can to not be known by the public?
2: I really think part of the invisibility is the sheer boringness of what one would have to study to really understand what's going on. So when there's, um, you know, I'm based in St. Louis, I'm in St. Louis now. And when something like Ferguson and that uprising happens, the most apparent aspects of what took place become the kind of vacuum for where our attention should be. So it becomes about police, about police body cameras if we could only catch them here and there. And the the idea then that gets lost is that Ferguson was facing a growing budget deficit uh, as one of the most affected uh, suburbs from the um, financial crisis uh, from the mortgage crisis. And they were having, as Jackie Wang traces, meeting minutes where you can find them, calling on police to make up for budget uh, budget losses due to that housing crisis. So then, those kind of getting into those meeting minutes and getting into those uh, the the financial aspects of police, which really grew in 2020 with that. We also an emphasis on city budgeting, but that's still a growing process. And I think one of the invisible aspects of it is that. It's cloaked in a particular lexicon that is really not that hard to understand, but it would take a certain amount of kind of combing through and study. Um, But once you understand it as Destin and many others have found, it's a kind of treasure trove trove for understanding uh, racial and class conflict in, in cities.
0: You mentioned the boringness, and I think that's really important to understand, that the boringness of the municipal bond market and trying to understand how municipal bonds work and how trying to figure out how uh, city budgets work, what could make this visible, one would hope, would be journalism, particularly investigative journalism. Is the municipal bond process invisible because... The press refuses to report on it, or is it uh, so? In, is it invisible because it's impossible for journalists to make it visible to the public? Is it simply one of those things that's a real challenge for journalists to explain how budgets work? And it, it's so difficult and so hard to explain that it becomes exploitable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been studies on this, but the fall of local journalism to corporate ownership uh, is a big part. There's studies that we're looking at some of the major, I think it it really was based in um, Baltimore, that the loss of local newspapers to corporate conglomerates and online media resulted in, um, you know, traceable increases in in corruption uh, and that which would take place at the financial level. And as a local journalist, I really experienced this firsthand as you know, kind of starting in uh, a right around Ferguson, that what you write has to be, you know, they have all these new metrics for tracking readers' engagement with your work, whereas before you published an article in the newspaper, that newspaper got circulated and things were read or not read, but there wasn't this kind of on a per-article basis of what readers' um, attention spans are. So if I write, if I try to write an article about you know, local financial issues in St. Louis, I have to somehow understand it well enough to keep a reader's attention in a media environment that people who are studying much more kind of explosive topics are, are competing with me. And, you know, the it, it, municipal finance and, and racism within municipal finance can be a very tedious topic to discuss, and it often will lose that... Um, If there is to be a competition, it will lose that competition to things which are maybe more easier for the reader to be engaged with for longer. And then editors who make assignments aren't necessarily, you know, their job is on the line to keep readers engaged. And, you know, it it kind of goes so on and so forth. And it, it is very hard as journalists to kind of carve out a space to slowly discuss and work through why we should care about something as mundane as municipal finance?
0: So, an information campaign wouldn't solve all of the problems that we see with municipal financing.
2: What do you mean by an information campaign?
0: Uh, just like making certain that people understand what municipal bonds are. I mean, just I, I'm I'm not trying to say that we should dismiss any kind of journalistic uh, achievement made or any kind of attempt made at trying to explain, but often people will say if you know if, if the people only knew what the system was like. If they had that information, then they would make the right decisions. You point out in your article at a certain point in time, uh, going back to the 1960s in San Francisco, how people voted against trying to uh, pass bonds that would help out social services, but then would pass bonds that were good for business. Do you think that that, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of, infor- that, that knowledge, that even if we had the knowledge of how municipal bonds function, that we would be making the right decisions.
2: I mean, that's what that's what those of us engaged in municipal finance research are, are kind of banking on. Um, I don't want to make any bet about that, but I do think 2020 showed us that, you know, that on the ground activism really did turn, uh, and you had activist organizations in St. Louis who, Actions St. Louis, our city defenders, really began to focus the public's eye on here's what the city of St. Louis's budget is. If we say 55, 45 percent of it is going to, quote unquote, public safety. And then if you look inside there, then you see that a huge chunk of that is just going to paying kind of inflated police pensions that have been bargained because of their particular political position and ability to influence who gets elected. You know, that was a sustained attention that was placed on city budgets for a year or more. And I think the amount of people and readers who wouldn't turn their head when they see a kind of article headline uh, about city finances is really growing. And so I think that information campaign, if I understand your point right, is kind of under is kind of underway. And I think it was really helpful to connect journalists with activists in that process. And scholars, of course.
0: How aware do you think the public is that the private sector, banks, business interests are profiting off the funding of the city, that their taxes are profits for the private sector, that their taxes pay interest on loans to cover police violence lawsuits, for example? How aware do you think the public is that that's where their taxes are going?
2: That's a great question. And I think the key for those of us, like I said, interested in this work is to not give the umbrella statement, you know, if I told someone, oh, Bank of America is profiting off police violence, I think the response from politically active people would be, yeah, of course. And it's like, that's only so interesting. When you say that Chicago is going to be paying, you know, close to a billion dollars in interest, not principal, interest off of bonds they took out to pay for police violence settlements and then you kind of break down what a city could do with that money otherwise and you what i found and what i believe is just the more granular you get the more meaningful it becomes i think the public we've we've reached this place of like capitalism critique where we're somehow never surprised oh yeah everything is capitalist exploitation the banks are making money off everything and i think we need to really get past that surface level to like which banks okay so in flint you have jp morgan you have um a conglomerate of three other banks one of them is regional how are those banks working together you know you have to keep digging in order to maintain that sustained political interest that would one day hopefully result in elected officials or social movements which would be able to kind of like walk back uh, how we got here and walk us into a new new future
0: You point out that banks and investment funds, by financing municipal bonds, have made a small fortune off of the infrastructural development of our cities. Aside from being an almost indestructible asset class, bonds are one of the only federally exempt or tax exempt places to store capital. And you add that in the rare event that things should turn south, as was the case in Detroit, Detroit's 2013 bankruptcy. It is everyday people, not bondholders, who are first in the line of fire. As part of the city's 2014 grand bargain debt reorganization plan, retired city employees' pensions were slashed by 4.5%, forcing them to go back, many to go back to work to make ends meet, while bondholders received privileged payouts who chose to bail out bondholders rather than fulfill pension commitments for retired city workers? Or was there no choice uh, that part of the agreement with bondholders is that their investment will be protected over all else, including the needs of retired city workers? So was this, again, was this a choice? Who made this choice? Or was there no choice whatsoever?
2: Yeah, it's another great question. And I think Um, like I was talking about with getting granular, what you find is these are contractually um, obligated terms. So bondholders, there's a kind of term in this uh, literature, like the primacy of of bondholder interests or the rise of bondholder interests. Um, Those contracts, which regulate who gets first dibs in a worst case scenario, are becoming more and more uh, skewed towards the interests of the bondholder and the situation in Detroit um, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had as to what would happen in any other city or or to what extent what happened in Detroit was based on a largely black uh, working class and impoverished pension holding city um, but I think the answer to your question is in the contracts and Bondholders, um, as we see in you know in um, areas of Chicago, uh, Chicago suburbs, when they're uh, I study Harvey and and the municipal uh, finance of Harvey and their pension setup, and when they get into a pension crisis, it's it's the same deal. Um, Those state transferred revenues, the bondholders have an almost indestructible uh, claim on. Mm their repayment, whereas the pensioners can be made uh, kind of cannon fodder or um, the kind of collateral damage of a city financial crisis, the bondholders, they will not allow that to happen. They have historically won out in court time and time again um, to have their interests uh, be privileged.
0: You also write that municipal bonds are doing more than ensnaring cities and residents in private debt. More and more, they have been used for distinct political ends. You say more and more. Is this use of bonds for political ends new? And if it is, what do you think provoked bonds suddenly being used for political ends?
2: So this is an area that is more kind of forthcoming in my in my study. I have the political ends that I've been interested in have been more in line with, um, you know, the work of like Dustin Jenkins and how we, the public, uh, both elected officials and residents, identify bonds with particular groups or identify debt with particular groups and kind of refuse a more holistic engagement or vision of what funding a city means. And so then those bonds become politicized. That comment in that article was directly talking about the use of bonds to kind of circumvent uh, the federal uh, regulation on desegregation. And they found the private market to be a co-conspirator in continuing segregation and receiving funding on favorable terms or similar terms to what the government would have given them. But that area of research is really something that I think is in need of being built out and looking at, you know, particular... Cities, particular bonds at particular times where similar things took place.
0: That's just amazing that the state was trying to get people to desegregate. Uh, that's what the people wanted was desegregation, you would think. And then instead the uh, cities and municipalities turned towards the private sector. For them to be able to continue segregation process you write that bonds have increasingly been used as debt issuances used by cities to pay off police brutality settlements they could not otherwise afford as we're uh, discussing earlier what impact do you believe that has on the municipalities policies when it comes to policing because past guest historian austin mccoy said on our show last november and i've been repeating this ever since that the alliance of local government and the police is unassailable How do bonds impact that alliance? Without bonds, would that unassailable alliance that their relationship cannot be attacked, questioned, or ever defeated, do you think that unassailable alliance would be threatened?
2: Oh, that's a good question. In St. Louis, uh, which is the city I I know most, um, the police union is likely the strongest political faction Uh, which determines election funding and election funding in a city like St. Louis, where everyone runs Democrat, there's no real um, political back and forth between the two parties, um, leaves you with the voting blocks, which can be really influenced by something like inequitable funding of candidates. So when the police really back a candidate, which they have the money to do, um, they're often successful in getting those candidates, elected and then once those candidates are in office we of course have found that there's no relationship between the success of police in terms of what the people actually want from police which would be first of all a mandate like decrease in violence there's there's absolutely no correlation between police funding and, and police success if you were to even call it that Yet the police continue to be able to make political demands to have their funding increased year after year. And what what do they base those demands on? Rising crime numbers. And it's almost like living in a, a kind of backwards reality of like we, the city and its elected officials, kept keep making a hyper investment in police to solve a problem that they have absolutely no correlation with solving vis-a-vis funding, but it continues to happen. I, I believe in part, yes, because the alliance between police funding structures and their ability to get the elected officials that they want in office, and even if it's not who they want, their ability to kind of tarnish or trash another uh, campaign for an elected official that they believe is against them in any way, shape or form. So it's not just who they can get elected, it's who they can keep from getting elected that also uh, really determines their ability to continue to grab funding and cannibalize these city budgets despite um, their horrendous track record in doing any of the duties that citizens want from what they would call, quote unquote, public safety.
0: Why do you think the public believes that funding the police more will lead to safer cities. We get the same thing with the defense budget, with the military budget. If we just spend more money, we will be more safe. And in particular, when we are not in a place of safety, even with all those resources, we still need more resources to keep us safe. Why do you think the public has this idea that the more funding of the police or the more funding of the military will make us more safe
2: in a city like st louis and i imagine it might be the same for chicago there's this kind of odd convergence that evades activists more simplistic renderings of politics and that convergence is of people who um really buy into this myth of danger in cities yet live in relatively safe environments so you have people who um if you were to survey or interview them, are just anxious beyond all measure about this crime boogeyman. And they have, these are the people who set up cameras, they set up, you know, they, and those people have a strident belief in police funding. And then in St. Louis, you have people who really do live in um, very, very dangerous neighborhoods, not like mild danger, but, you know, you're hearing gunshots every night. there's a a kind of very real, tangible, unsafe uh, environment. And when surveyed, those people also often, and this is the part that really troubles or has troubled the politics of many activists and uh, the aftermath of BLM, is that those people also often are in support of raising police budgets um, and vote for uh, often Black or African-American police-based candidates because, there's just the the alternative thinking is just not yet where it would need to be. And I think that's growing rapidly, but there is yet to be an alternative to uh, the kind of violence that is is both experienced and kind of mythologized in American cities. And I, and I do believe that um, activists will, you know, the 2020 moment was like a moment of replacing police officers with social workers and and this kind of discourse. And as that discourse grows, I think those opinions will begin to change. Um, But for now, there's still this kind of uncomfortable convergence um, between multiple residential factions of any given city that allow a kind of pro-police candidate to be elected.
0: How much resilience do you think that movement has, seeing as how there has, there's been a lot of blowback against many of the politicians who did say that they wanted to defund the police? Here in Chicago, former Mayor Lori Lightfoot campaigned on having the West Side Police Training Center, our own version of Cop City, campaigned on it to not be built. Instead, when she got into office, what she did was she expanded that structure. How much has that movement against police violence been uh, undermined by any kind of blowback from the Defund the Police campaign?
2: You know, I just have to say I just love these conversations. This is the type of stuff I think about endlessly. The Defund the Police, that moniker I feel like – as a way to get people in the streets it was very successful. As a political tactic for political campaigns, I think there could have been a walking back of that exact slogan. I think that slogan is, is good for one thing and has proven itself unsuccessful for another thing. That other thing being getting people elected I think there would have been a really simple kind of um dialectic shift that could have taken place to kind of reframe, you know, let's not say defund the police. Let's say it and that comes from my belief that change doesn't happen all at once. Reorganize the police, um, restructure the police. And no, that doesn't sound good to me, and it doesn't sound good to you, I'm sure. But could it get someone in office who actually believes and the slogan defund the police. Yeah, maybe. So I think there needs to be some parsing out of what we say to get people on the streets and what we say to get an elected official at the local level um, in an office that could really do something impactful.
0: That's really interesting, the idea of what might work for a on-the-street campaign, what might work for a political movement, doesn't necessarily work when it comes to electoral politics. You, uh, We are speaking with uh, award-winning independent journalist Clark Randall, who posted the Boston Review article, Bond Villains, How a Little Understood Feature of Urban Finance Municipal Bonds Fuels Racial Inequality. You can find out more about Clark at his website, ClarkRandall44.com, and on Twitter at... Clark T. Randall. You uh, also mentioned that in May, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis banned the state from issuing municipal bonds using environmental. Social and Governance Ratings, ESG Ratings, or Criteria, deeming the system part and parcel of the woke mind virus he claims is taking hold of society. The ESG investment movement is a tool meant to guide investors toward perceptibly more ethical decisions and funding. An investor steered by ESG precepts might only invest in bonds for projects that meet specific environmental criteria or decline to invest in a bond for a project that increases greenhouse gas emissions. Hardly a radical tool, but one that may have been of some use in a state like Florida, whose governor has explicitly denied the existence of climate change and banned its cities from adopting 100% clean energy goals. So are municipal bonds being increasingly targeted by conservative governors? Are states taking power over how cities spend their money? Or has the state always had this kind of power and influence over city spending?
2: So state law does dictate city spending, and state law dictates a city can take out, you know, X percentage of their total assessed property value and debt in order to fund itself. So they have had a kind of paternal patronizing power over cities, we see that in Flint, um, when Michigan State Governor uh, puts them under emergency management, for instance, that's a state law that's dictating what a city can do with its tax revenues, so on and so forth. What Ron DeSantis did with ESG bonds, um, that's a kind of new foyer into um, <laughs> the, I think it really more than anything shows the amount of division between the kind of left and right discourses. When I think the ESG bond movement um that is not going to be, uh, sol- going to solve for, and anything to do with the climate crisis, anything to do with the future livability of this planet, is it one step better than where our finances rest prior to the ESG movement? Yes, potentially. But we even saw recently BlackRock and I think it was Enron or another large uh, oil oil company um created shadow shadow companies to appeal to these ESG ratings they were able to procure hundreds of millions of dollars in funds yet those funds are going to BlackRock and an oil company under the guise of ESG investing so the amount of holes in ESG investing and and what that means is is so wide that really it, it renders them a kind of uh first small and short step into what we can imagine of a more just financial regulatory apparatus, if we are to even call it that. Um, but it does show where Ron DeSantis sits as he's trying to gain kind of cultural capital for his anti-woke movement, and, and calling this kind of ESG movement woke. And what that really does is it, it tempts the left to stand up for ESG investing when really, you know, I, I don't want to take his bait on that. Um, ESG investing is part and parcel of uh, financialized capital. And it's really, I think there are these traps all around us uh, to make us stand up for things that the right is against that really, you know, we shouldn't really be for either.
0: You've mentioned uh, Destin Jenkins' uh, 2021 book, The Bonds of Inequality Debt and the Making of, an Amer- of the American City, earlier during our conversation. And you're right that th- that book reveals that municipal bonds represent a key point of capital transfer between the market, the state, and the people. When put under the microscope by Jenkins, we can see the myriad of daily mechanisms that give shape to such transfers. An interest rate on a given city's bond may appear as the colorblind manifestation of a free market function. Banks bid it up or down, and at some point, this process results in the sale of the bonds at a certain rate. In reality, the interest rate outcome was fabricated from an aggregation of racialized data points. Inputs like a neighborhood's property tax levy, unemployment rate, and median income uh, come together to inform the market in a sleight of hand. sociologist Davin uh, Norris recently dubbed embedding racism. But how can data points be racialized? Aren't data points always objective metrics and markers?
2: So, yeah, Devon is really the leader on on this, and I'm working with him on the Chicagoland Pension Project. Um, he'd be another great person to talk to, but he very simply kind of traces a history of em- employment discrimination, housing discrimination, uh, and so on and so forth. And those the, the long shadow and current manifestation of those racist processes yeah those influence the data points that are supposed to be um figured in as objective to the financial market and i think a great example here that i've been studying uh, is jackson mississippi you mentioned earlier uh in the lead up of this podcast and i'll make this just kind of a short uh tidbit here jackson mississippi 80 percent african-american uh seeing some of the highest levels of poverty uh, in that state for a major city. Their water has been dirty on and off for, you know, the last 25, 30 years. Work from Courtney Ponder, a geographer, showed that Jackson, Mississippi, since 1970, has been paying the highest on average interest rate for their bonds over, a, you know, this is a 50, more than a 50-year period. Second place is Flint. And those are not accidental. That is the embedded racism that Devon Norris is talking about. And Jackson, you know, I would love to talk about them more right now. I don't know how much time you have. I think they're really the best way to to make it through a subject like this. They'll be paying off debt that they incurred trying to fix their water system until 2041 um, at $7 million a year for a total of, 200 million dollars over the life of that um, repayment process and that was from debt they incurred trying to fix their water process or their water cleanliness before it collapsed Um, so again i don't know on time but i would love to get into some jackson dynamics i think it's the most prescient current example if if listeners want to realize like where the rubber meets the road on embedded something like embedded racism
0: well so why do you think that's why do you think jackson is such a key point in that discussion and you know the, the reason that I'm, i want to follow up on that is because it's not part of the discussion you don't hear anything about what is happening within jackson mississippi when we had uh, daniel a listener who dropped by here what he described to us we just couldn't believe what was happening there, with the Capitol Police taking over jurisdiction over the entire city, Mm -hmm. uh, and then forcing, arresting people on the streets of Jackson, Mississippi, taking them three hours away to another uh, area of the state so they can be tried without a group of their peers. What is happening in Jackson, Mississippi right now is disturbing. It's very, very disturbing. And even for us, it's difficult to get somebody to be on the show to discuss it. It's hard to find somebody to want to discuss it, because a lot of the people and the activists in Jackson are very busy busy trying to save Jackson, Mississippi. Why do you think Jackson, Mississippi is so indicative of the embedded racism that happens in every city across the United States?
2: So let's rewind just a little bit to Jackson, you know, and I think it was about 20, don't quote me on this, 2017, 2018. Um, Those city officials with pressure from residents uh, and no support from the state um, who clearly need to fix their water system, their water monitors were also manual in the past, so they weren't getting the kind of residential repayment on on water usage that they were supposed to. They were getting about 70% of what the city was owed. They hire a transnational company called Siemens or Simons German-based company. They take out $90 million in municipal bonds. Remember, Jackson has the highest interest rate of any, any American city since 1970. So they take out a $90 million bond to contract Simons. Simons promises Jackson, we will save you $120 million over the first 15 years based on our new systems, which will regulate water usage Um, reporting so you will be recouped all this money we will make a more efficient technologically savvy version of what you have now that will you know what they told them quote unquote in the contract or in the discussion according to Jackson officials what this investment will pay for itself Jackson takes out the bonds hires Simons they come in and they could not have failed more miserably and Judd, J-U-D-D, Legume, L-E-G-U-M, has a great article on this, really walking through the financial dynamics. But what happens with Simons is that not only do they not save the city money, but they do not fix any of their contractually obligated um, water systems that they were supposed to fix. So Jackson has a water crisis. They take Simons to court. Then they sue for $200 million. They sue Simons for $200 million. And part of that is that they're saying, not only did you cost us the $90 million, but we took out all this debt and that affected our credit rating. So Moody's and the major credit rating agencies slashed our credit rating because they found our debt levels to be higher than we wanted. So now that's going to deter their future ability to take out funds in the market. So they're suing for $200 million they settle on just getting the 90 million back. And this is reported as kind of like wash our hands, tit for tat, we totally mess this up. What they didn't say and what Jed reports is that 30 million of that went to the city's lawyer that they hired for the case. And another 30 of that has to be held kind of idly in an escrow to make sure that the city uh, funds this Um the next investment on water properly and so Jackson can't really mobilize that money so what might look like a washing of the hands of a major investment in the newspaper headlines if you get deeper you see how the capital transfers that you and I were talking about a second ago really take place which was that was a failed investment but Jackson will still be paying that back like I said until 2040 their rating will not recover they are still Seeking funding um, and the argument would be where else could we see this happen? What other cities, you know, uh, they said it's a, a red state war on a blue city and a white war on a black city. And that is, I think, really an apt way to put it to really capture both the political, racial and class dynamics of what's happening there. And like you said, and like we experience here in St. Louis, it's just not a city that's discussed in any national conversation about, you know, race, finance, social movements, but the people there, like you said, are are working kind of tirelessly to expose these things. But, yeah, I think the inner financial dynamics of that really need to be brought to the forefront to show just the damage and violence as, as to what is taking place in that city.
0: You were just mentioning credit agencies. You write that lenders and credit rating agencies like Moody's essentially taught public financial officers how to appeal to them, what characteristics would make their cities more appealing to faraway markets, what budget guidelines were lenders looking for, and for what demographics were they not. Public officials from the onset were dependent on the blessings of rating agencies and the financial commitments of lenders. Together, they formed fraternal relationships as partners in the municipal bond market, defined by whiteness, maleness, and status. How much influence do credit rating agencies have in determining municipal policies? And do you think the uh, public is aware that credit rating agencies' uh, determinations on the credit rating of a municipality can lead to policies?
2: I mean, you guys saw this in Chicago. Chicago has a terrible track record with the rating agencies probably the worst of any major American city. I can't think of someone who's had a harder time, you know, and, and that goes for Illinois. The state, too, has had a terrible time with with Moody's. Um, and it absolutely has been used as a cover for austerity politics. Um, you can't, it's very difficult as a mayor or a governor to come up and talk about cutting finances for, you know, for their, just to that end. But when you say that we're doing this so that we can someday make larger investments by now appeasing the needs of this rating agency who, what their power is, is really the ability to block, they can both determine interest rate spreads, but they can also really kind of block a city out of the debt market. If, they, if you're determined to be junk status below this kind of triple B rating, you're not going to really find buyers for your bonds. So it, it essentially leaves you high and dry. So with that kind of gatekeeping access, they can absolutely push policy towards particular places. Uh, there is a kind of big disagreements in the field as to just how much the rating agencies themselves do this. But I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, material evidence that when their new rating comes out or when you hear in the news, the newspaper always reports it, front page Post-Dispatch, front page Tribune, Chicago rating gets slashed, Moody says, St. Louis rating gets slashed. That can absolutely be transformed into a, a campaign talking point about what needs to change in the city because it's front page of the paper. A lot of people read it. So it kind of primes the residents to be looking for and accepting of austerity politics instead of saying we're headed down. What we need is a bigger investment. What we need is, you know, the way out of a crisis wouldn't be austerity, but, you know, further and deeper investments into the uh, political economy of the place.
0: And this kind of comes back to something that we were discussing last week, and we discussed many times on the show. And uh, that is this uh, lack of uh, awareness of exactly how things are funded And then therefore not being able to make the correct decisions You, uh, again, going back to credit rating agencies You point out that as a past guest on our show, Kianga Yamada-Taylor has noted This racial inequality is all the government's fault explanation Also fails to explain why so much of this inequality was entrenched in the 60s and early 70s An era when the federal government had begun to undo its explicitly segregated And you then ask, was it simply the inertial uh, force of historical government racism, or was there something more at play? Indeed, there was. Cities used the municipal bond market and the private sector as a whole as a way to evade civil rights policy. So, did ratings agencies oppose civil rights? Did credit rating agencies uh, make this cold calculus that civil rights were bad for profits and were bad for business?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, one thing that didn't make it into the piece, and Dustin does a great job tracing this history, is something called riot futures. And in economic terms, there's futures markets. That's where investors go to bet on the future price, um, future supply and demand of a particular asset. In this case, rating agencies would see cities, you know, you have the long hot summer of 64 and 65, where cities are going up in flames. What the rating agencies did is they would see cities with large uh, black populations and estimate that their chance of having a riot in the future would be greater and that those riots ultimately hurt city revenues by either shutting down business, burning businesses. They hurt the tax pull. And so there's kind of a, a future punishment on cities, even for the potential that they would um, be the next city in line for a riot. And Destin really paints this picture uh, uh, really well in, in terms of how the rating agencies would would almost say as much uh, in their in their analysis. And we saw this in Ferguson. Uh, Ferguson used to have a kind of double A very high rating with Moody's. And when that uprising took place, uh, the next rating they received was unprecedented. Moody slashed them seven notches. Um, there's only 21 notches in the system. And that was, you know, all predicated on what the, that uprising meant to Ferguson's economy in Moody's eyes. Um, and they, they essentially write that that Ferguson used to have a kind of favorable revenue generating system of police, this kind of fines and fees, pull people into court, uh, take their money from the city. The DOJ came in and kind of exposed that, um, made a consent decree. And Moody's writes, you know, this will cost the city money that, you know, fulfilling the, you know, needs of that consent degree and kind of having their plundering exposed is gonna cost the city cold hard cash and we're gonna take their rating into the trash can, um, making it even harder for the city to fund itself. Uh, so the rating agencies are absolutely pro-stability and see any conflict, especially racial conflict as detrimental to a credit worthiness uh, rating for, for a given city.
0: One last question for you, Clark. This has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you about this single article of yours for another half hour easily because there's so much more to it that we have not discussed. Uh, we are we have been speaking with award-winning independent journalist Clark Randall, who posted the Boston Review article that I strongly suggest you go and read in its entirety, Bond Villains, How a Little Understood Feature of Urban Finance, Municipal Bonds, Fuels Racial Inequality You. Can can find out more about Clark at his website clarkrandall44.com and on twitter.com at clarktrandall. One last question for you, Clark, and we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Where our audience is going to hate your response. And this is a question that's been really bugging me because I have spoken to a lot of debt activists and they don't seem to see the same problems I see with credit rating agencies. So now we all have credit ratings. How much do credit ratings agencies not only control our local governments and their policies, including how and where they spend their money, but as well, control our all our lives how much do credit agencies determine what education we get the community we live within the condition of our neighborhood the home we live inside the food we eat the clothing we wear the health care we receive so that makes our question from hell for you clark lucky you it's a three-parter do credit agencies control our lives why do we tolerate it and can we take that control back
2: yeah man i would love to see a kind of uh antagonistic movement against individualized credit ratings we do have to parse out that you know the the credit rating agencies that determine a city's rating and the ones that determine our personal rating bear no relationship to each other other than the kind of moralistic belief in credit worthiness as something to be judged numerically and as something to be stratified um, along class, income, race, gender lines. I, I've i yet to s- see that movement, but l- let me think for just one sec. I think just the idea that creditworthiness is something to be aspired to, there has to be a kind of theoretical resistance to that notion. Um, and this comes, I think, from... David Graeber has, you know, rest in peace, uh, done some amazing writing on the basic politics of money. And I think what's embedded within the term credit worthiness is the idea that people and cities and states and countries deserve particular interest rates. And what he has kind of walked through in his work is charging interest on money used to be illegal. It's against most religious doctrines. There should be a kind of basic, you know, humanitarian disgust with the fact that we would have to pay back more than we received over time. And I think starting there to kind of work out a resistance to like, no one deserves a worse interest rate than another person We need to begin to redistribute risk back onto the creditors and away from the people who need debt. Risk is what really, you know, has been lost somewhat in this conversation that. You know, whether it's the bondholders or your credit card holder, that risk should be taken on by them and should not be a punitive aspect of what you need to get through your daily life placed entirely on your shoulders, that if you miss one credit card payment, you're done for years. You could pay back faithfully for years, but that one ding, and it's very similar with cities, you can't just have a minor default. If you default once, um, it's over. And there's a great book called Why Not Default, kind of calling for this on a national national level, the author's name is Escaping Me, but it's called Why Not Default, and um, it's just about ha- how do we organize a basic movement, whether it's amongst individuals or formally colonized nations, to not pay back debts in full, and to do that as a matter of principle and solidarity with those who cannot pay back debts in full. Uh, and that thinking has a way to go, and I have a way to go in learning about it, but I think that's some of the most exciting ideas uh, around these times is there is no moral aspect of paying back debt, you know, and having to ruin your personal life or your city to do so. What if cities came together, you know, cities that have been exploited by the financial markets, Flint, Jackson, who have the worst rates possible, what would happen if there is a cities came together and refused to pay back all at once on the terms demanded by creditors. I don't know, it would probably be catastrophic. But that kind of thinking has yet to been played out or or what kind of strength could be found in in mass defaults on on any individual or governmental level that's been happening most actively in this like student debt conversation uh, that we've been witnessing and, and what would happen if cohorts of students organized to not pay back loans. But, you know, continuing to expand that thinking is, is very exciting to me and, uh, and things of that nature.
0: Clark, thank you so much for being on our show. I'm going to bug you an email to see if I can get contact information for Lerone Martin to talk about his book, The Please Gospel do. of J. Edgar Hoover. And I will send you a hilarious David Graber story. That will make you that will make your week, I promise you. And I can tell you this part, weed is involved. So thank you so much for Beautiful. being on our show. We're looking I'm looking forward to having you back on the show in the future and uh, look for an email from me. Uh,
2: I really appreciate you, Chuck.
0: All right, take care, Clark. Yeah. We, have been, we were speaking with, again, journalist Clark Randall Who wrote the Boston Review article, Bond Villains This is not the media, this is hell And you know this is not the media Because for whatever reason, the establishment press Has no interest in informing the public about who profits from their tax hikes And the culture of violence it reinforces If we're talking about structural racism And the way in which cities pay for police violence lawsuits You know this is not the media This is is hell right now you can show your appreciation for this is hell providing over 27 years of content that you can't find anywhere else giving air times to opinions like clark's and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996 never having a paywall during that entire time, including nearly 10 years of free shows, you can listen to at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that. Completely listener supported, This Is Hell, without any commercial, without any interruptions whatsoever, but without any commercial endorsements, without any grant money, money, we only are funded by you. So become a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And somebody has to because, you know, that to everyone in the media, this is hell. Most recently on Patreon last Thursday, August 24th, Patreon patrons can now ask me a question from hell, a question you may hate to ask, I may hate to answer, or everyone, including you, may hate my response. Earlier this month, the question from hell for me on Patreon was from subscriber P.F who asked what it would take for me to have a four-day work week and a relaxing three-day weekend. However, PF stipulated that it has to be done without jamming five days of work into four days or recuperating from the week by sleeping in on weekends because that kind of recuperation and recovery never really works. Like many of the questions from hell posted by Patreon subscribers, I became obsessed with PF's question, either because it is fascinating or my OCD is just that bad. Either way, I couldn't stop thinking about it, and while contemplating a four-day work week and three-day weekend, I started thinking about bigger issues other than my own work schedule. Issues like what is probably the most important competition we all engage with every day, and that is time versus money, valuing one over the other in the ultimate self-commodification of our lives. Also on Patreon, the far right always screams at the top of their lungs about how radicals have taken over college campuses across the United States, believing that somehow we're still mired in 1968. In reality, it's the far right that has been working hard to take over universities, and they're succeeding. We were scheduled to speak last week with Lisa Corrigan about neoliberalism and its impact on public state universities in the U.S., but Lisa got COVID despite everyone insisting the pandemic Is over. Lisa has rescheduled with us, and we'll discuss the rights takeover of universities on our show next week on the day after Labor Day. However, to remind all of us that this far-right takeover of America's public state university system has been a long time in the making, we shared an interview from 2006, from 17 years ago, when we spoke with Felicia Gustin. co-director at Speak Out, the Institute for Democratic Education and Culture, which you can find at speakoutnow.org. At the time of that conversation, Felicia had just co-authored a new report with past This Is Hell guest Anuradha Mattal. That report was titled Turning the Tide, Challenging the Right on Campus, which was posted at the Oakland Institute website, oaklandinstitute.org. The report was an analysis of right-wing and corporate influences in and on college campuses back in the aughts when reactionaries had already shown major successes at taking over university life. By the way, at our Patreon page, we ask subscribers what they think of my answer to PF's question from hell, which you can hear during the monologue. And you can see those very kind words of support from all of our listeners right now at patreon.com slash thisishell. So I posted the question, or a question to our Patreon patrons, and they are responding about exactly how I might be able to have a four-day work week and a relaxing three-day weekend. And maybe you too. But the only way you can hear and do all of that is by becoming a This Is Hell patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to Steve S. O, Old Grouch, Brian H., all of whom increased their monthly pledge to This Is Hell on Patreon. Thanks to uh, Steve, Laddie, Grouch, and Brian. And welcome to our newest subscribers, Chris the Beautiful and Nick M. Thanks for joining us, Chris and Nick Dan, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding on Patreon?
1: This week's question from hell is what makes you so special anyway?
0: I like Andy. your pause before anyway. <laughs> I don't like that. It's very dramatic.
1: Thank you. Um, Andy E says, the way I cope with my powerlessness.
0: <laughs> that seems pessimistic at best.
1: <laughs> uh, David S. is more optimistic. I haven't the vaguest idea, but I have the greatest wife and children in the world, so I must be doing something right.
0: Uh, Not necessarily. (laughs) All right. (laughs) It might be your wife. (laughs) Right. I like how you
1: (laughs) took that. (laughs) Uh, Jeff H., absolutely nothing. I may be abnormal, but I'm not special. Oh, that's sweet. Uh... Nose Rajeev re, re, it's, it's
0: Jefferson backwards uh, You've all, yeah. told me that yeah. before
1: <laughs> uh,
0: I'll catch it sometime. Soon, <laughs> Sooner or later yes. Your dyslexia will kick in like yes.
1: I love sleep It's most likely my favorite thing But I am very good At operating on very Little sleep whether it be snow plowing in the wintertime or staying up extra late to enjoy as much of my life outside of work as possible, that's all I can think of so far. I'm assuming this does not mean I'm special. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all, right. Uh, all
0: right. That was circular.
1: Essential says living and breathing the merch mantra. <laughs>
0: Of This Is Hell, I assume I
1: hope <laughs> Fabio L. says I listen to This Is Hell <laughs> Now all our listeners are indeed special uh, Laddie says The way I part my hair Along all far four cardinal points <laughs> It's pretty good That's disturbing <laughs> <laughs> Old Grouch, I am white This is <laughs> Oh god this has kept me out of prison and in good jobs all my life. Oh I didn't earn it. I t- I tried to turn it down and succeeded, succeeded sporadically. 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 Yeah. Yes, I have only begun to understand it in my 70s. This truly is hell. Wow
0: took him till the 70s.
1: I just learned old grouch is actually old. I was Didn't always, even know. Yeah, I was always oh, sure. imagining a young old grouch. Sure, yeah. old soul. Yes.
0: Young person, old soul. <laughs>
1: Tarzan Animal says, that's what my mama said to the <laughs> short bus driver. Wow. And, and in demon voice, mama is never wrong. Oh, yikes.
0: That was creepy.
1: Yeah. Uh, public universal comrade, The way I'm just like everyone else.
0: That's what makes him special.
1: And uh, Bruce asks that I decline to respond. That's what.
0: (laughs) So that's what makes him special. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, as always, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merch you want? You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to the question from Hell. At our Facebook page, you can leave it on Twitter, you can leave it at Discord, leave it on our Patreon page. And you can now, if you are a member of the Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group, you can actually leave your answer to the question from hell there as well. And we'll be sharing all of the responses to this week's question from hell from all of those locations later this week. But remember, we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. And now the return, triumphant return yet again, of Dr. Sebastian Wupper, a historian himself who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The
3: past inside the present.
0: You got him there?
1: Hey, Sebastian is unmuting. Yeah. It should right.
3: Hello, Sebastian? Hello, hello. All right,
0: there you go. All right.
3: Yeah, I was about to say uh, return. I was never really gone. I'm not really going, it, going you anywhere. You know what? I, the only
0: reason it says return in there is because it's a artifact from a last script that
3: I did not oh. take out, so my mistake. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> me 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 let's go uh so today is a bit of a weird one i am doing more of a soapbox speech now uh today than a straight up history lesson and this comes down from having lived in this country as a foreigner for almost a decade and still being annoyed at a bunch of things these here united states do differently uh but not for any really good reason by my humble estimation uh, there is some history inherent in this because as i like to say everything has a history but this is something that straddles anthropology sociology well and history anyway Today I want to talk about something that America does differently from other countries that never ceases to low-key, high-key annoy the hell out of me. It's one of these American quirks that we shrug our shoulders at and never quite look at about why this is and why the U.S. has to be exceptional in this instance when other countries have long since realized that this is not the best way to do things and that doing things like other countries is not at all a bad thing. And if I was talking about guns or healthcare or electoral politics, it would be less awkward, I guess. I should probably also talk about those things at some point, and I have talked about these things at some point. But no, today's thing I get worked up about is a little stupid to get worked up about. But then that's probably also the reason why most people probably barely ever think about it. So where I'm from, if you're out and about with your parents or other legal guardians, you can drink beer and wine when you are 14 years old. You can legally buy beer and wine when you're 16. And when you're 18, you can get any sort of alcoholic beverages anywhere. It's fine. Here you go. Knock yourself out. That's Germany for those of you not in the know. And Germany is... uh, as is widely known to be a smoldering crater in the ground because of all the excess death from teenagers getting hammered, except that it's not. In the United States, meanwhile, well, things are different here, aren't they? So why is it that in most of the world, the legal drinking age is 18, sometimes even younger, but in these here United States, it's 21 The United States has a somewhat muddled history and definition of its age of majority, the age at which a citizen is considered to be an adult. When an American reaches legal adulthood, actually varies. There are some things that happen when you're 18, there are some other things when you're 21, and then again something at, what, 25 or 26 regarding car rentals? And then there's again differences between some things in terms of state level and federal level and between states, too. But for simplicity's sake, when prohibition ended in 1933, the legal voting age was 21. So American lawmakers set the national legal drinking age at 21 as well. And that was that for a couple of decades. During World War II, the drafting age for the armed forces was lower to 18, so some teenagers who got drafted to kick German or Japanese butts protested that if they're old enough to fight, they should be old enough to vote for who sends them fighting. There was a lot of chortling about the youngs not knowing what's good for them, but some states actually lowered the voting age for 18 in the wake of that discussion. This did not change much about the drinking age, but it's an important related issue, since this all relates to who is considered a full adult and who isn't. Later, when the Vietnam War came around and teens were again drafted to go die for their country, the outcries about the national voting age became a lot more pointed, and that fueled the political debates and lowering the voting age nationally to 18 through a constitutional amendment. And that then eventually happened when the states ratified and President Nixon signed the 26th Amendment to the Constitution into law on July 5th, 1971. So nationally, after 1971, the legal age of majority, the age of adulthood, where one was a full citizen with all the rights and obligations, was 18. Except that it wasn't when it came to alcohol. And since that seemed a bit silly to many Americans and many state legislatures, many states lowered the drinking age to 18 to make things make more sense during the 1970s. Drinking age is generally something that is handled on the state level in these here United States of America, I should add. Michigan, for example, lowered the full legal package regarding the age of majority to 18 in 1972. And immediately the haters got going. Studies supposedly showed an immediate drastic increase in car crashes among 18 to 21-year-olds following the lowering of the drinking age. This is a trend in drinking age discourse, by the way. It always comes down to Americans just being irresponsible pricks and driving hammered. So church groups, concerned parents, and other goody-two-shoes went to work and lobbied Lansing to raise the drinking age back to 21. And similar things unfolded across the country, but with widely mixed results. Uh, Some states set their drinking ages back to 21, others lowered them to fit with voting age and the age at which a citizen is tried as an adult. And then on May 3rd, 1980, a California kid by the name of Kareem Leitner was killed by a drunken driver in a hit-and-run accident. And just to be perfectly clear here, I'm not being a heartless dick. I Losing a kid to a drunk asshole driver is a goddamn tragedy I wish on no one, and I don't want to make light of the tragedy that struck Miss Leitner's family. But what came out of this, well, it did change the country because Miss Candace Leitner, or Mrs. I'm not keeping tab on uh, her marital status here, went and channeled her grief into activism. And that activism birthed the group called Mothers Against Drunk Driving, or MAD with double D. Uh, This group quickly garnered widespread support, understandably. I mean, it's not like anyone could be pro-drunk driving. Who, who, Who would be? road drunk driving that's just a silly thing to be for uh but when mad set their eyes on but what what mad eventually set their eyes on was the legal drinking age and they got support from new jersey democratic senator frank Lautenberg, who was annoyed that kids well adults but kids in the drinking age sense could travel from new jersey over to new york to get alcohol even though they were not 21 years old because new york's drinking age was 18 at the time and so Mad put their substantial lobbying machine into gear and in 1984, President Ronald F. Reagan signed the National Minimum Drinking Age Act into law. And this act is kind of interesting, since legal drinking age is constitutionally speaking a states issue, the federal government cannot tell the states to enact a specific drinking age. And the act does not do that, but it stipulates that states which refuse to set their drinking age at 21 will, as a penalty, receive an up to 10% cut of federal highway subsidies." to miss or misses Leitner's credit she herself got annoyed that uh, the organization shifted its focus towards preventing underage drinking instead of preventing drunk driving and ceded the presidency shortly after In the meantime, more studies came out that basically couldn't find much of a difference in teen adult drunk driving accidents before or after the raising of the drinking age. What studies showed uh, was that a shift happened in most of the cases. Uh, Now more people uh, between the ages of 21 and 23 had roughly the same amount of drunk driving accidents that previously happened with uh, 18 and 21-year-olds. Today, calls are again rising to lower the drinking age, um, because it's a bit absurd to say people are adults at one age, but then go, psych, not for X, Y, and Z. And now, why is this a thing that I personally find so annoying? Well, it's carding culture. I hate it. And you should too. Here's the thing. Americans of my generation and younger... Well, I guess I'm considering myself an American now, I just realized. Uh, So starting with elder millennials or xennials or whatever you want to call us are constantly infantilized. We are not allowed to grow up in so many ways by American society dominated by the boomer generation. I still get people telling me not to worry about things because you are still young and have so much time ahead of you. And I'm sitting here like I'm over 40. I've been hearing this. You're still young for almost 20 years now. And I still hear it. I mean, it's great to think I still have so much ahead of me, but when can we say that I'm no longer young? When can my generation start feeling like we are the adults in the room now? Probably never. So, okay, what does this have to do with drinking age? Well, this is where things become sociological, anthropological, and also very silly. When I first arrived here almost a decade ago in this country, most cashiers in places selling booze had a little sticker saying we will ask for ID if you look younger than 28. And that was fine. The difference between having a drinking age at 18 and uh, 21 is that people don't really look like they're younger than 18 for that for that long. But people can look younger than 21 for quite a bit. So it's understandable that a cashier who is legally obliged to make sure to not sell alcohol to a quote-unquote minor has to ensure they don't do that and since it's much harder to sell to tell if someone is just under 21 than it is to tell if someone is just under 18 there has to be some sort of rule of thumb for that and I found this extremely annoying personally because when I wanted to buy a beer there was always a chance that cashiers insisted I show them my passport instead of my German ID card. Both show the same data, but the ID card is not on the list of accepted documents, but the State Department strongly discourages foreigners from carrying their passports around if they don't have a pressing issue, like opening a bank account or signing a lease which really isn't nearly the same level of gravity as getting a six-pack for the weekend but I digress. I always looked a bit younger than I was, so When I came here at age 33, I was frequently carded on the looks younger than 28 provision. Thanks, I look young. But here's the problem. That never stopped. Over the years, the if you look younger than age kept creeping up. And currently, it's basically if you look younger than 45, we have to card you, which it's getting a bit silly. And in my estimation, this is all a part of the boomers refusing to accept my generation as adults. Whenever we go and want to take part in adult things, we basically have to have our adulthood questioned. And this will never stop. Now many places say, we always card, because that makes sense. Because that's what this specific form of carding is at the end of the day. Uh, Look here, kiddo, we don't think you're really an adult. Every time you want to have a drink. And nobody has an issue with that. We just accept it. Because something, something, think of the children. Seriously, if anyone, though, if anyone thought in the past seven years that I didn't look at least 21, I don't even know what to say. At this point... It all just lost the cuteness. And to be quite frank, I just I just no longer find it amusing. Uh, I used to find it, you know, flattering getting carded when I was 33, 34, but still getting carded at 42 mandatorily, still having to have my being a full grown adult question anytime time I go to get some beer. That's society at large telling us that we're not really worth listening to because, well, we're not really adults, and yes, this is a very silly thing to get worked up about, but it is one little thing in a whole series of things of various sizes that tell that tell me and uh, people of my generation and younger uh, adults, younger than me, that we're not really adults, we're not really grown-ups. We're still so young, with a life in hell still ahead of us, forever.
0: Wow, that was really, really good. I still get carded. It's really annoying, and especially when I I don't drive. I can't drive. Thank God I don't drive. Many people (laughs) would be dead today if I did drive. So I have to show a state ID. You don't need a state ID for anything except for being carded at a store. There's nobody ever asks me for my ID ever. So my ID uh, expired in 2015. I had no reason to get it updated whatsoever until marijuana dispensaries came around, and now all of a sudden I have a reason to have a legal ID. But people weren't people would not accept my ID. I would go into a store. Look, I'm 18 years older than Sebastian. I would go into a store, show my ID, and they'd say, yeah, but it's expired. I'm like, Who cares? Who cares? It's me. That's That looks like me. That's the
3: birth you, date. You could be a secret shopper out to get them. I could be.
0: That's yeah. right. I could be a secret shopper. Good Lord, I totally forgot about secret shoppers. <laughs> All right, Sebastian, until next time, always great to hear your voice. Looking forward to having you back on. That was a very, yeah. very good uh, Pass Inside the Present. Thank you <laughs> Thank very you. much.
3: <laughs> All right.
0: All right. Take care. So uh, I was telling you earlier about an email that we got from Francesco. I'll be sharing that tomorrow as we've gone over a little bit. Uh, Dan, uh, what's Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth?
1: Jeff will weave a tale not from Celts, but Celt ish.
0: Why is Celt spelled with a K? Uh,
1: the, in a separate email, he explained that it was so it, we don't say uh, Celt. Celt. I, and see. I got a little bit like, well, who does he think I am? And then, <laughs> th- then I remembered the Celtics and I. So, cut all right. Down. Sure.
0: Sure. <laughs> uh, and who are our upcoming guests on this week's show, Dan?
1: We've got Matt King to be on. uh, Will be on to discuss his article at the New Republic. Big tech's waste solutions are a scam. Rather than face hard truths about reorganizing our system to stop waste, the world is falling victim to empty and inefficient cleanup. Promises from the Tech Industry.
0: Oh, the New Republic and their stupid long headlines. Who else is going to be on next? <laughs> uh,
1: and also we'll wrap up the week with an interview from another Boston Review article. We will be speaking with Hugh Ryan, who wrote the piece, Who's Afraid of Social Conditions? Tijan, our ideas about sexuality and gender have changed before, and now they're changing again.
0: And again, the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchen. Uh So thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. Thanks to Nick for joining us, shadowing Nick or shadowing Dan and learning how to produce the show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz, pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996. This is